It's Wednesday, April 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. All eyes will be on Georgia as Governor Brian Kemp intends to start reopening his state to business as soon as Friday, April 24th. Gyms, barbershops, bowling alleys can reopen, although they will still have to practice social distancing and screen people for fever and respiratory issues. Dine-in restaurants and theaters can open on Monday, and statewide stay-at-home orders expire at the end of the month. James Homan, national political correspondent at The Washington Post, joins us for how Georgia will reopen. Next, for the first time ever in trading, U.S. oil prices dipped into negative territory on Monday. Companies had to pay to get rid of the oversupply of oil, but this doesn't mean that you'll get paid to take gasoline off someone's hands. While we might see modest savings in the next few days and weeks, the big question remains, what to do with all that extra oil? Amy Harder, energy reporter at Axios, joins us for more. Finally, President Trump is suspending U.S. immigration for 60 days, citing the coronavirus crisis and a job shortage. The thought process behind this is that it will limit the number of people coming from global hotspots and relieve pressure on the healthcare system, but it will also limit job competition from immigrants. Gabby Orr, White House reporter at Politico, joins us for the new immigration orders. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. In the same way that we carefully closed businesses and urged operations to end to mitigate the virus spread, today we are announcing plans to incrementally and safely reopen sectors of our economy. Joining us now is James Homan, national political correspondent at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, James. My pleasure. Wanted to talk about how states are planning to reopen their economies. Governor Brian Kemp from Georgia is setting an aggressive course to reopen, and it's kind of putting his state at the center of this big national debate on how and how quickly to do this. So Friday, April 24th, they're set to ease some of these restrictions. And we're looking at things like gyms, barbershops, tattoo parlors, bowling alleys to possibly start opening up, and a few other things to open up in the days after that. James, tell us a little bit about the plan and the blowback that he's receiving already. There's definitely a lot of blowback, and Georgia is becoming an experiment. Notably, Georgia was one of the last states to put a lot of these orders into effect. Just a few weeks ago, Governor Kemp said it was news to him that he had just learned that asymptomatic people, people who aren't showing symptoms, can be spreading the coronavirus to other people, which is something we had been talking publicly about for months and months. Right, exactly. He finally puts in these restrictions and then kind of immediately wants to relax them. Georgia is not a rural state. You know, this isn't Wyoming. There are some rural states where there have not been many cases. Georgia is a major state. Atlanta is a major metropolitan area. They actually have had a lot of cases. The federal guidelines say that you should not relax any restrictions until you've had 14 consecutive days of declining infections. Georgia has certainly not had that. And so it is going to be an experiment. And Georgia is not just any state. It's where the CDC is headquartered. But these are decisions that are up to the governors. We live in a federalist system. I think the decentralization of America is one of our strengths and one of our weaknesses. So Georgia will start to roll things back. They can always retighten them. Other states are watching. But for all these governors, Republicans and Democrats, this is the most important decision they'll probably ever make as governor. I mean, this is a life or death decision. Relaxing the restrictions too soon doesn't just jeopardize the people who are going to go get tattoos and go to the bowling alleys. It's also dangerous for the people who 
go to the grocery store where the people who just went to the bowling alley are then going yeah. to go shopping and are starting it. The big thing that the epidemiologists talk about is the r naught, which is the number of people that an infected person infects. And so if you get the coronavirus, are you going to infect two and a half people or are you going to infect half a person? You know, I hate being under house arrest. No one wants to be at home. But the idea is that that limits the spread. And so the more you have gatherings of people, the higher that r naught number is going to be. And so the Washington Post conducted a poll that we released today with the University of Maryland a national poll. And it found that only 10% of Americans think that it's safe to reopen stuff in April. Only 10% of people think that it is safe for more than 10 people to congregate right now. Yeah. So the vast majority of Americans, two thirds of people say they think it's going to take till June to be safe. So part of it too, it's not just up to the governor. If you're a citizen of Georgia, you don't have to go to a bowling alley <laughs> right. or a tattoo parlor, right? People follow cues, but like, I love to work out, but I wouldn't go to the gym right now if it was it's, open. So let's talk about what's coming up. April 24th on Friday, those are the gyms, barbershops, all that. These places still have to practice social distancing. Right. They would have to screen people for fever and respiratory right. issues. And then beyond that, so April 27th on Monday, theaters and dine-in restaurants can start opening. And then April 30th, at the end of the month, all the shelter-in-place orders are over. So it's tough there. Georgia's not the only state. South Carolina is also pursuing some type of aggressive reopening. Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis there said he's given his task force five days to develop a plan. So it's not just Georgia. These states are going to start opening up. And you mentioned how big Georgia is and how big Atlanta is in particular. Mm -hmm. There could be a possible clash with the mayor of Atlanta. She's already said that she doesn't necessarily agree with how this plan is laid out so far. It's a hard decision. You know, we, in our poll that I mentioned, half of Americans say they have been directly harmed economically by this crisis. People are suffering, and Latinos and African-Americans disproportionately so on, on the economic side and on the health side. I get the desire to kind of get yeah, back to work as soon as possible, but the head of the CDC actually gave an interview to one of my colleagues today where he said that he worries that there's going to be a second wave of infections in the fall that's actually going to be worse and deadlier than the first wave because we're not going to have a vaccine. And so, you know, if you let your foot off the gas, it might be fine in some states and in some places, but lives are on the line. One of the things that was also interesting in our poll was there's a partisan split about when to reopen. This has somehow become kind of the new front in the culture war. But Republicans, the biggest dividing line among Republicans, and something that kind of trumped party affiliation, was people who are concerned that they personally might get the coronavirus and that they might get very sick, very against relaxing these restrictions. And people who aren't worried that it's going to affect them, that they don't think they're going to get infected, they're totally supported. And the thing is, like, a lot of the people who are kind of like, yeah, let's relax the restrictions – don't think it can happen to them. And it's like in California, obviously California is sort of a success story, but I know a lot of people that have gotten it and been hospitalized and in some cases died. And, you know, I think more and more we were in the field with a poll last month and twice as many people now know someone who has had it. But I think for a lot of people, it still doesn't feel like it can, especially a lot of conservatives who typically believe in liberty and small government and government not telling them what to do. That's their worldview. Because they don't think that this could really happen to them, they kind of don't care. But there are a lot of people who are very vulnerable, and the truth is that it could happen to them. James Homan, national political correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you.
We're looking to put as much as 75 million barrels into the reserves themselves. That would top it out. That would be first time in a long time it's been topped out. We'd get it for the right price. Joining us now is Amy Harder, energy reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Thank you for having me on. For the first time ever in trading, U.S. oil prices went into negative territory on Monday. The oil markets have been upended. People are pointing to some deep financial jeopardy if this keeps going. Amy, tell us what's going on with this. This is really an unprecedented time for all of us, of course, but especially the oil industry, because if you think about it, the solution to solving the virus is to get us to stop moving around. And yet the whole purpose of oil is to move us around. And so what happened with these prices going negative on Monday, and we expect to see it in the coming weeks continuing, is that there's too much supply of oil and not enough demand. So literally companies are having to pay people to take their oil and it's really unprecedented and we don't really know where the bottom is yet. People hear that that companies are having to pay others to get rid of their oil and right away people think, oh man, well gas prices are gonna drop tremendously. Are they gonna pay us to take away the gas? It's not really the way it works, but we could see some gas prices easing, but maybe not for a couple of weeks. Obviously, the oil industry and people who work in that sector are very concerned about the negative prices. But for most people, what we care about is gasoline prices. Exactly. And frankly, the lower the better. But I quickly confirmed with experts that even though, yes, prices have gone negative in the global oil market, no, we will never get paid to fill up our gas tank. <laughs> and that's for a lot of reasons. But one main one is that there's a lot of other costs that go into a cost of gasoline that will offset the negative cost. Global oil prices make up a little bit more than 50% of a gallon of gasoline. But then there's the refinement cost, the transportation, and then finally state taxes. But that said, states across the country are still seeing prices at the gas tank plummet. Some are seeing, I think Wisconsin and Kentucky are two examples where drivers are seeing prices below a dollar. The other thing we're seeing too is kind of this ebb and flow of these gas prices. As soon as we get out of this, we could be in for some very high oil prices. The oil industry is no stranger to booms and busts. So the industry has been in a relative boom over the last year. The United States is now the biggest producer of oil and natural gas. And so they've been booming for a while and now they're busting. And this is a record bust. So at least the way typical economics work is that we are going to be seeing extremely higher prices, not next month, not even this summer, but this price spike could come in the middle of this decade. And so in 2025, when hopefully the global economy is doing well, we'll see higher prices and we can thank the pandemic for that. So my understanding is that these prices have gone so low because for the most part, people that have bought all of their oil for the month of May, because we're always trying to project, there's always a future thing happening here. Most people have already bought all the oil they're buying for the month of May. So that's why it's so low. So we're looking ahead to the following month to see where prices are going to be at then. That's what technically drove prices into the negative territory on Monday. It was really the end of a trading window for the month of May. I liken it to sort of the game of musical chairs and the music stopped and some of the oil barrels didn't have a place to sit down. And that's what prompted the prices to go negative. We're into a new month, though, and the music is back up, but prices are still really low. So as the month wears on, 
you can anticipate that we'll go into negative territory again. I should emphasize that we're talking about U.S.-based futures contracts, so WTI versus Brent, which is based in Europe. I know the Trump administration said they want to add about 75 million barrels to the nation's reserves. But beyond that, what do we do with this extra supply that we have? There's just no place to put it. There's been dozens and dozens of ships added to the seas full of oil just sitting out there in the ocean. But, you know, this is a big question. And Trump has said, oh, we have a lot of places to put the oil, but we really don't. And I think that's one of the biggest questions that this administration is really grappling with right now. I I mean, just the numbers are staggering. So, yeah, maybe another 75 million barrels into the nation's strategic reserves. But, you know, the world usually consumes about 100 million barrels a day. And right now, oil is off at least 20 million barrels a day. So that's 20 million barrels a day of excess oil that has nowhere to go. And that's a day. So, I mean, the numbers are just staggering. And so there's no place to put it. So ultimately, the end effect will be companies will just have to stop drilling. And beyond that, will we see any bailouts or any type of financial help coming to the oil industry? I certainly think the, the more dire the situation gets, the lower the prices go, the more likely something will come out of Washington on this. President Trump tweeted about that on Tuesday, saying that he's directing the Energy Department and the Treasury Department to come up with a plan to help the industry. The only way Democrats will take what they'll call a bailout for the oil industry is if they get something for renewable energy companies, for example. So I anticipate some sort of pairing of an oil support package along with support for the renewable energy industry, which, by the way, is also struggling because everybody, all of us are struggling. Amy Harder, energy reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. It would be wrong and unjust for Americans laid off by the virus to be replaced with new immigrant labor flown in from abroad. We must first take care of the American worker. Take care of the American worker. Joining us now is Gabby Orr, White House reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Gabby. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about some new news that the president tweeted out on Monday evening. He plans to suspend immigration to the U.S., with one possible major exception, looking at farm workers and maybe some other guest workers, the administration is still working on their plan, but they said that this could be implemented within a few days. Uh, he's planning on a big executive order on this. Gabby, tell us a little bit more about what we know. The president did announce in a late night surprise to much of us last night that he would be looking at trying to temporarily suspend all legal immigration to the U.S. This would include H-2B recipients, people who are looking for work visas, foreign workers who often come to the U.S., seasonal workers. These are the types of folks who would be affected by this order. And that's one of the things, as you mentioned, that the administration is now looking at potentially walking back or at least excluding from an executive order. I've spoken with White House officials who are still working to draft the text of this, but one thing that they're keeping a close eye on is how they could get around severely impacting the agricultural and farming industries. Obviously, those are important to the president's base and something that he doesn't want to irritate heading into a presidential election. Tell us what's been going on with immigration recently, because 
obviously we're dealing with the pandemic right now. So a lot of this other stuff has been kind of shut it down a little bit. We haven't been hearing about it as much, but we've had travel restrictions. They're slowing visa mm-hmm. processing. They've already barred asylum seekers and undocumented immigrants from coming into the country. So now, you know, with this would be a complete total shutdown. And I think the president did oversell it a little bit in his tweet last night because a lot of the things the administration has already done has brought both international travel to the U.S. and also immigration to the U.S. to a virtual standstill. So the restrictions that we've already seen have paused processing for immigrants who are trying to come to the U.S. on visas that would not apply to non-workers. They've obviously tried to shut down the southern and northern borders. DHS and Immigration and Customs Enforcement are basically shuttered a lot of their field offices, from what I've been told by officials at the Homeland Security Agency. And so there are certain things that the administration can still do and is certainly looking at in order to enact what we would say is a total and and complete shutdown on immigration. But for the most part, they have done a lot already. You know, I think it is important as the way that they're structuring this is extremely political in the sense that they want to both cater to people who rely a lot on seasonal workers and foreign workers without upsetting the business community and other Republicans who are less inclined to support restrictionist measures against immigration. And that's exactly the spin on this. The focus that they're putting on it is that this is all about jobs. And we've been getting the unemployment numbers. They're really bad. Over 22 million Americans have filed for unemployment since this whole thing started. And from the president's tweet, that's what he put. He's like, you know, we can't endanger the jobs of Americans. But let's focus on the farm worker aspect We've gone through this discussion so many times already. There's a lot of Americans that don't want those jobs. You know, uh, that's why we have these guest worker programs and these people that come in to help us on those fronts. So on one end, yes, we do need to help out Americans that want jobs, especially in this time. But at the same time, these things have historically gone to these other workers. And the administration has continued for the past several weeks to allow up until this moment, foreign workers to enter the country to take a lot of those jobs, you know, landscaping jobs, jobs in the agricultural industries. These are things that are often filled by foreign employees. So restricting that through an executive order is raising the eyebrows of those in the business community who have long been opposed to such restrictions. At the same time, the president is listening to a handful of advisors who do believe this is the right move, that this will score points with his base. But also it will help certain sectors of the economy as we try to resuscitate the economy writ large. He's talking to people like Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas. He has watched a lot of Fox News. I don't think that's any secret to anybody. And his former attorney general, Jeff Sessions, was on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox just the other night advocating for a complete ban on immigration to the U.S. So he is paying attention to what the more hawkish immigration folks are saying, and it seems for right now, at least, that he's listening to them and not to others. Gabby Orr, White House reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.